You know, when we hear that word, renunciation, you know, it's probably not uncommon for many of us, maybe all of us in some way, to sort of steal ourselves, like, he's going to ask me to give something away that I don't want to give away, whatever it might be. I think it was Suzuki Roshi that talks about renunciation, that it isn't so much about you or me or somebody giving something away or relinquishing something as much as you or me or all of us realizing that things go away. I don't know if you noticed on the chant sheet, we didn't do the chant, um, but I have the five remembrances and you can take that chant sheet with you. You might like to have a copy. And at the underneath the chant, we have been doing the suffusion with the divine abidings is the five remembrances. I'm of the nature to grow old. I haven't gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to sicken. I haven't gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to die. I haven't gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I am the owner of my karma, born of my karma, heir to my karma, Whatever karma, whatever intentional actions of thought, word, deed that I do, that leaves an impression, and of that I will be the heir. So that's a bit of a paraphrase that last, the fifth one. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. You know, the Buddha suggests that when we're obsessed with wanting something, I always use the example, my own example of, you know, wanting the perfect secluded cabin. Well, no one will bother me. <laughs> Except me, I'll bother me. <laughs> that, uh, you know, just noticing <clears throat> the burden of that wanting, like the weight. And we want to... Sylvia Borstein says, you know, we want to notice that just feeling the desire is so much easier than becoming the one who's dependent on having what we want. Because that feeling of desire, that experience of desire, it comes and goes. This is a real important homework assignment for all of us is and start with a simple desire, not the most intense desire in your life. And you you can probably intellectually know sort of some of those places in your life where you have desire. So then you can prompt yourself to be on the lookout like a snack late at night or whenever you're in this part of town going to that place or doing this with your friend or watching that program on TV or whatever it might be that you're really attached to, you really want. And then um, try to see if you can see the difference between feeling the wanting and the experience of needing that which you want. Because they're two different things. And I really like this distinction. I think I heard it first from Ajahn Sumedho 
um, where he talks about this, it's not desire. I think I mentioned this in maybe one of the small groups. Could have been the large group, but you know, desire in its most simple form is this natural, animating. You could even call it a life force, right? Living beings are animated by desire. The desire to survive, the desire to eat, the desire to rest, the desire to be safe, and other, of course, other desires. And then when we misunderstand that natural arising, right, it's a, what is desire in that simple form? It's just that movement in the mind and the heart. It's like a, a tug or a force. It's that intention. Oh, I want to. Let's do this. And we can just feel that. But that, that the habit has become that we misperceive that force of desire and we personalize it. We misperceive it as me who needs this in order to be happy. You see, what happens as soon as I do that, as soon as I become the one who's going to be happy when he has the perfect cabin, secluded cabin, then right now, what have I just become? The one who's not happy because I don't have it yet. Right? And that whole struggle then to no longer be the one who doesn't have it, and to become the one who does have it. And then the interesting thing is, if we're really, uh, wherever we are in this cycle, like maybe you're in a moment where you finally are having some desire you've had for a long time and you've been identified with for a long time, gratified. And it's really important that anywhere, it's really important to be interested, to be aware and to be aware of gratification. I mean, gratification is something when we get, especially, you know, in this scenario, when we get what we've wanted for a long time, that experience is something, right? Can you think of a time where you got something you really wanted? And it was, you know, even, it can even be somewhat impactful. But how long is that experience? It doesn't last very long whatever it is. I mean, even on this retreat, there probably, for some of you, maybe all of us, sits where we really, really, really wanted the belt ring. (laughs) Right? And then it does, there is a wave of pleasure when the bell rings. Oh my God, finally. (laughs) (laughs) But then, you know, it's very quickly like, oh God, I can't wait till the walking period ends. Right? It's just the next thing. The next, we have a moment of release, relief, because the mind is in the habit of looking for, uh, for desire, identifying with desire, and in doing that, identifying with desire, it's created a personal problem. It's created the sense of a being who's suffering because it doesn't have what it wants. And we'll only be relieved when it gets what it wants. You know, the Buddha didn't teach about renunciation initially. I mean, he taught about it right away, but only to people 
who he felt could hear that renunciation is joyful. And if people weren't ready, then he would talk about the real value of living with generosity, like Sonia was talking about tonight, or uh, just the the real happiness that arises when we uh, purposefully, intentionally become more attentive to harming and non-harming, and just that moral sensitivity in all ways that we're um, complicit in, in the cycles of suffering in ways that maybe we haven't been that sensitive to. And we just, not in a tight way, but because it makes us happy. So if you want to be happy, you know, because most people who see the Buddha back then, 2,500, 2,600 years ago, you know, they were just ordinary people. They weren't necessarily even that spiritually inclined. They were just ordinary people like us who felt a lot of stress in life. And then... Apparently, there's somebody who seems to know what they're talking about, so they go, listen, you know, and the Buddha was pretty intuitive, and he realized, like, well, not everyone is ready or interested in hearing about the joy of renunciation. So what these people want is just ordinary happiness. But the way most ordinary folks like us pursue ordinary happiness is, what do we do? We try to get what we want, and we try to get rid of what we don't want, right? So sense gratification, getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. And so people, like when they, they see a charismatic teacher and they think, well, this person is going to tell me what I should want <laughs> and what I should not want, you know, because I have been pursuing what I want and what I don't want and getting rid of what I don't want, but I'm still not happy, so I must not really understand so I got the wrong car, I got the wrong cell phone, the wrong partner, you know, the wrong this, the wrong that. I came to the wrong retreat center with the wrong teacher. Tell me, how, you know, which, which thing to grasp, which thing to want, which thing to not want. Right? I mean, we're obsessed by that. What is one of the most popular thing on social media are these lists of things you might want. Have you noticed? Even the New York Times, you know, which I've been a reader of for a long, long time now. I can't help myself but looking. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but anyway, it's on the New York Times. <laughs> and, you know, every day they, they've got a, a few things that they really spend a lot of time reflecting on. And these, if you're going to get one of these, these are the ones you want to get. Not these other ones. And here's the reasons why. And I just like, I'm a, I want to know. Even things I would never want to buy, I still want to know what the right one to buy is. <laughs> and why, right? And there's some deep fear about, like, uh, with our limited resources, getting the wrong thing. Oh. Being, you know, it's just like... So, the Buddha's, you know, recognizing that, right? So... In a stealthy kind of way, he starts to teach about renunciation. Oh, you want to be happy? Okay, here's something to get. But it's really about letting go. But he doesn't talk about it in letting go. You know, cultivate dana. Cultivate the circle of giving and receiving freely. The non-stinginess of the heart. And notice how it makes you happy. Relate in every relationship, small or big. 
like avoiding stepping on an ant is a moment of non-stinginess. That's where my foot was going to go. But I can generously step over here. Even though it's a little awkward, that's a little act of generosity. How does that make us feel? As opposed to, you must be an idiot. You're where I'm going to step. <laughs> Sorry. You know, that sort of like, I'm bigger than you. I have rights. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we practice stinginess, closing our heart, even just, it's an act of generosity to be attentive, and it's an act of stinginess to presume, in this situation, I don't really need to be that sensitive. Now, normally we think of generosity like a should, I should be generous. I don't really want to be generous, but I should be generous. Because if we talked about this in one of the small groups, I think about uh, in Buddhism, moral sensitivity is something that arises internally. It's not something that's imposed from the outside. And it's a real cause for happiness. Dana and Sila, you want to be happy in just this ordinary way, then Put your energy into Donna and Sila. Uh, this is something we should check out. It's like, if I told you that Sonia hid 50 gold coins, each one an ounce, which is about $2,000 in the Southern Dharma property between here and the dining hall, <laughs> you know, we'd get interested. But if a spiritual teacher tells us, hey, happiness, just ordinary happiness, forget that, you know, spiritual stuff. Just ordinary sense of well-being, totally available. Dana Sila. Dana is living with non-stinginess, generosity, and Sila is that moral sensitivity. But somehow we're not that interested. You know, it's and I and is it a lack of faith or we haven't had enough testimonials? I mean, one thing we can do is just uh Reflect on people that we've had the good fortune to know that just seem to have an authentic, natural sense of well-being. And just see if you can do the correlation, like, do they tend to be a morally sensitive, generous human being? Oh, interesting. That's a little, you know, that adds a little credence to what the Buddha was teaching. And then we can just check it out, like, notice those places where we're naturally not stingy, generous. And notice those places where we're naturally morally sensitive. We care about non-harming ourselves or others. And notice how that feels. Like, what does that set in motion for us? But you see, it's, it's really about renouncing. But the Buddha doesn't talk about that way, right? We're renouncing, like in terms of non-harming, we're renouncing doing whatever we want. And when we talk about generosity, this sort of hoarding instinct. I might need it later. <laughs> How many pads do I need? I was thinking about that earlier uh, when I was flying here, you know, just about some things I have in my closet. I said, like, How many of those do I really need? You know? And notice how good it feels to give things that are still usable that somebody's going to appreciate and give them away. That feels really good. Somebody else is making use of them. 
and to support others in that way. So then when people have, like they start turning their life around and they're living more generously and with more moral sensitivity and their life just starts to work better. Now, there's still sickness, there's still aging, there's still all kinds of things that can happen to people that Donna and Sila, Sila won't protect you from, right? Like mosquitoes and other natural phenomena. But you'll just, but what we can do is set in motion, like, you know, if your option, and it would be nice to do a double blind study, you know, but if, if our option is to work really hard to get a lot of money, to have a really nice place, or spend the same amount of, make the same amount of effort to cultivate generosity and moral sensitivity. I know where I put my money. I mean, <laughs> we still might do the wrong thing because of the, you know, there's just like doubt. We don't want to be set up. But what has life really taught us? I mean, this is a nice thing about celebrity culture. We read about all these people who do have, you know, wealth and fame and I'm not sure they're happy, generally speaking. There's a interesting story from the suttas, the discourses from the time of the Buddha, where some young monks, you know, the way it usually is, like when they're staying in a particular place for a while, they might go, they, they do go into town, the local, the nearest village, in this sort of beautiful, mindful line. They walk with the most senior person in front and then to the youngest, newest monk at the back or the nun at the back. And then, uh, then they eat their meal together. But most of the time they have their own little, um, platform or little place under a tree. But a couple, maybe a hundred meters from the nearest other person. So within earshot, but far enough away so they're not going to bother each other. So secluded. And some of the younger monks, you know, later in the day, they over, kept overhearing one of the more senior monks sort of uh, mumbling under their breath, what bliss, what bliss, what bliss. And they knew a little bit about this older monk that he had, um, before he had ordained, become a renunciate, right, a, a monastic, that he had been like a king or chief in some area in northern India at the time, a lot of wealth. And so they thought, oh, He's not liking his monastic life, you know, with, they basically have three robes. They're just sheets, you know, that they wrap around themselves and a bowl to collect food and a few minor things. And that's really all the possessions they're supposed to have. Oh, he's probably fantasizing about the nice life he had and wondering what the hell was I thinking, you know, becoming a monk and on and on. So they told the Buddha, thinking they were doing the right thing. And so the Buddha, probably knew what was going on, said to the younger monks, well, go ask that senior monk to come see me. So they did, and they were all kind of gathered around to see what this interaction was going to be like. And the Buddha checked in with him, like, is this true? You know, and please explain yourself. And so there's this great little, see, I'll find the passage here. Is it true? Vidya? 
that on going to the forest to the foot of a tree or to an empty dwelling, you repeatedly exclaimed, exclaimed, what bliss, what bliss? Yes, sir. What meaning do you have in mind that you repeatedly exclaim, what bliss, what bliss? So he says, before, when I was a householder, maintaining the bliss of kingship, I had guards posted within and without the royal apartments, within and without the city, within and without the countryside. But even though I was thus guarded, thus protected, I dwelled in fear, agitated, distrustful, afraid. That now going alone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, I dwell without fear, unagitated, confident, and unafraid, unconcerned, unruffled, my wants satisfied, my mind like a wild deer. This is the meaning I have in mind that I repeatedly exclaim, what bliss, what bliss. So when the Buddha heard this, he gave a little verse. He said, in whom there exists no provocation and for whom becoming and non-becoming are overcome, they are one beyond fear, blissful, without greed. And this is the provocative phrase. He says, whom even the devas can't see. Now, some of you know that word, devas. It's the angelic or celestial beings. But the point is, people like that, awakened ones, they're living like nature. They don't, like the activity of the body and mind, there's no resistance to that, right? So anybody looking, they just see nature. That's the idea. It's kind of poetic. Does that make sense? Because what, what the Buddha is implying with that sort of poetic comment is that the rest of us, you know, people still operating at least some of the time, a lot of the time with a mind colored by greed, hatred, and delusion, even if it's, you know, subtle or not extremely toxic, but still greed, hatred, and delusion, irritation, fear, anxiety, longing, right? This is common stuff for us. Then that resistance, that not wanting things to be the way they are, that's kind of who we are. Like that's kind of our brand, each of us differently. But like who Mark is, is his craving and his aversion. That's what in a way stands out, (laughs) you know. And think about like when you get together with your good friends. Mostly we're talking about greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, have you seen that new restaurant? And you know, we're making big deals about, big deal about things that aren't actually big deals, aren't actually significant. That person said this to me, you know, oh, if only that person liked me, or something like that. And I know this is kind of ordinary conversations, and I don't want to demonize our sort of ordinary way of being in the world. But that's why the Buddha didn't always teach this initially. Like, we're really, you know, just to put it to the nth degree, we're renouncing, the path takes us naturally to a renunciation, ready, of existence. But renunciation of existence doesn't mean we let go of existence. 
we're letting go of dependence on existence. That, in a way, in a sense, is a more operational operational way of understanding nibbana, nirvana. Right? It's it's that moment, the moment a moment of awakening is a moment when the mind, the heart, relinquishes its dependence, its clinging to existence. And then that mind realizes the mind without any dependence on existence. Right now, do you know the experience of a mind not dependent on existence? Honestly, we should say no. We don't know that mind. We might have had moments of that, so that, and those moments, because they're impactful, there may be some ongoing reverberation from those insights where we've tasted or touched or intuited that mind not dependent on existence. But it's good to understand because it, it humbles us. Like how to be a human being, a sexual being, a being with appetite, a being that can distinguish what's pleasant from what's unpleasant. I mean, this is, this is like uh, Sonia was saying in her sharing, you know, this practice is very human. We're not rejecting the sort of ordinary humanness of having preference, of knowing what we like and what we don't like, and having urges and all these things. It's about not misunderstanding humanness, our humanness, really understanding it clearly for what it is and not imagining it's more than what it is and not imagining it's less than what it is. What is it? I mean, we have a word. What is it? It's nature. It's just nature. All of what is moving here, it's nature. So when we talk about the renunciation of existence, it's really not making existence more than what it is or less than what it is. The Buddha was very clear. He said, you know, craving is the problem, right? Craving is when we misunderstand desire and we start taking desire personally. That's kind of the technical definition of craving. And then when we act on craving, we call it grasping or clinging. So there's natural desire, unavoidable, can't be a living being without desire. And when... Desire plus misunderstanding come together, then we have craving because we take desire personally. And then when we act on that craving, then we get grasping. When we grasp, when we do something about craving, we grasp, then we become the person who acted on craving. So we've, in a sense, taken birth as the person who did that. It lays down something, leaves an impression. It's like that chant about karma. I am the owner of my karma. Whatever has been laid down, that, I'm the continuation of that. This mind that is experiencing and understanding is the continuation of the mind who 
related in the ways that this mind has related in the past. The past is gone, but what continues is the continuation of that. Having done that, having thought that way, related that way, then the mind is like this right now. And we can't really do anything about that. So when the Buddha talks about craving and grasping, he talks about it, well, well, the obvious thing is we crave pleasant sense experience and the opposite, avoiding getting rid of unpleasant sense experience. And we crave wanting to become somebody. And then here's the point I wanted to make. We also crave wanting to be done with it. Right? So the, the, I'm saying this because the renunciation of existence, the non-dependence on existence, not wanting to exist is its own kind of strange existence. Like, I want to be somebody who doesn't exist. <laughs> That's the exist, existence I want. The existence that is non-existence. Right? It's just another thing. Just like uh, when we're single, you know, I want to be in a relationship. And we're in a relationship, I want to be single. Right? So it's that any rejection of nature unfolding, any dependence on things being other than they are, hurts. And we don't have to rely on the Buddha. We can just check for ourselves. doesn't mean we like the way it is or that it's even appropriate the way it is or just the way that it is. It may be very unjust, unjust. But it is this way right now. So the non-dependence on existence, it's like, uh, yeah, that we don't even know what that mind is. I'll just read something from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, he's a, a Westerner that spent many years in Sri Lanka as a Buddhist monk and uh, an amazing scholar. And then since he has been quite old now, he's moved back to the States. He, he's got a monastery, uh, I think it's in very northwest corner of New Jersey, um, where he lives and still does some teaching. He has a lot online, really wise teacher, scholar. So um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, Bhikkhu just means Buddhist monk. Bodhi is his monastic name. And Bodhi, by the way, just means awake. It's related to the word Buddha. And he writes, he's writing, this is a chapter on renunciation. And this wonderful little book you can get, I, I advise people who are really into early Buddhist practice, it's just a great summary. It's called The Noble Eightfold Path. You can get it, I think, a digital copy free online, or you can order a paper copy. You have to pay a little bit, but the digital copy should be freely available. And Bodhi is just B-O-D-H-I. To move from this identification with desire to renunciation is not, as might be imagined, to move from happiness to grief, from abundance to destitution. It is to pass from gross entangling pleasures to an exalted happiness and peace from a condition of servitude to one of self-mastery, right? Because we're enslaved by our desires, whether it's a desire to have or desire to get rid of, 
a desire to be calm, a desire to be done with, get out of here. But we really, like when we're caught, right, like we have been today, haven't we? It's oppressive. Can't wait till I go to bed tonight. You know, it's totally fine if the thought arises of being in bed to notice the pleasure that comes with that thought. But then to become the person who needs to be in bed and therefore hates that it's only 826, <laughs> you know, that's being enslaved by that mind state that we've just created. Desire ultimately breeds fear and sorrow, but renunciation gives fearlessness and joy. It promotes, promotes the accomplishment of all three stages of the threefold training. It purifies conduct, it aids concentration, and it nourishes the seed of wisdom. The entire course of practice from the start to finish can, in fact, be seen as an evolving process of renunciation. That's really important to, uh, you know, see everything you hear around the Buddhist teachings and practices. It's all about letting go. It's all about renunciation. So we really want to reform. There's one more sentence. Culminating in Nibbana. And remember, Nibbana, do you know that word? It means... It comes like in the local usage at the time of the Buddha, it means a fire going out, the extinguishing of a fire, right? So culminating in Nibbana as the ultimate stage of relinquishment, the relinquishing of all foundations of existence. And here he's quoting the Buddha. You see that a lot in the suttas. The relinquishing of all foundations of existence. So that's what I meant about the non-dependence on existence. So we can still be a partner, but not dependent on being a partner. There's a funny story. I don't know if people know Susan Piver, I think is how they pronounce her last name. She's a teacher, Buddhist teacher and author, and has been published a number of times, I think in Tricycle or maybe Lions Roar, I forget what Buddhist journal. But she's uh, written uh, several articles about relationships. And she tells this wonderful story, some of you maybe have heard me share it before, um, where she was going on a Buddhist retreat. I think she practiced in the Shambhala tradition. And they were sort of hanging out before the retreat began with the other people on the retreat and had dinner together, just chatting. And she developed this nice rapport with an older man um, that she hadn't known before. And they were talking, had a nice connection. And he started sharing about some of the stuff going on in his life and He'd been dating a younger person and they want to move in with him and he's not so sure. And he's kind of going back and forth t- telling her, this new person he never met before, about the situation in his life. And finally, he just sort of blurts out to her, do you think it could work? <laughs> As if she would know, you know. But she had this great answer. Well, of course it can work. As long as you don't think it's going to make you happy. See, this is, this is a, another way of understanding renunciation. So like you're trying to figure out, should I have kids? Should I get married? Should I leave my job, become a full-time Buddhist practitioner? Should I stop my practice and become more worldly? And 
you know, whatever. It's like, well, the key is, if you're doing something to make you happy, you should be suspicious that it might be off from the start. So why should we do something if it's not going to make us happy? Well, we could do something because it's like a dana. You know, it's like when we enter a relationship in that spirit of generosity where there's a beautiful giving and receiving, right? Because the giver receives a lot. And the receiver, in a, in a funny way, gives a lot too, right? It's that whole idea is there's a circle there. But it's not about, um, it's really about uh, the relinquishing is what is so joyful and satisfying, the non-dependence, the non-dependence. So what's left is love and generosity and kindness and intimacy, not accumulating wealth or accumulating power or accumulating friends or even accumulating knowledge or even accumulating concentration, a beautiful mind. As nice and functional as it is to have great samadhi, the point isn't great samadhi. The point is using whatever samadhi we have, whatever stability of present moment we have, to see things as they are. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Right? That's one of those pithy phrases, teachings from the Buddha. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. So I just, uh, an encouragement, you know, as you continue your practice tonight and tomorrow and then for the rest of our lives, is to be curious about the, is there joy and renunciation? Is there joy and non-attachment? Real joy, a resonant joy that surpasses any joy of gratification, getting what we want or getting rid of, you know, it's like, it is really nice when we've been sick and then we heal. So come on, gratification is a real thing we're really hungry and then we have a satisfying meal, that's a real pleasure. However ephemeral it is, it is real. But the joy of not being dependent is like in another realm of happiness, another realm of joy. To not be dependent on having what we like or getting rid of what we dislike. You see, it's so empowering because we're living in a world where there's so much uncertainty, so much vulnerability, we're not in control, right? And so this non-dependence, it really, like if good stuff comes, we're still going to have that experience of gratification. And if bad stuff comes, we're going to have the pain of having what we don't want, what's not pleasant. But we're going to meet all of that with a heart that's not dependent. The way I'll just end with the story from Ajahn Chah. I love this story. He says it's like a log floating down a river. And on one bank is happiness. On the other bank is unhappiness. And you could say pleasure and pain too, right? And so the point, 
You know, the mind is the log floating in the river. And the danger for our mind, any mind floating in the river, is getting confused by either of the two banks. Misunderstanding unhappiness or pain and misunderstanding happiness and pleasure. Because on this ordinary level, we think that's what it's about. But living a life in pursuit of pleasure, getting what we want and avoiding what we don't want, well, then we have a life like most of us have and a world like we're living in. Well, how's that working for all of us? You know, there's a lot of suffering because we think this is the point. Right? We think the point of life is to get what we want and stay away <coughs> from what we don't want. Now, even when you're exploring the Buddhist teachings and practices, go ahead. Chase what you want. Try to get away from what you don't want. But just bring your awareness along. How's that working? And see what your options are. Like, even as you make, you know, you're sitting and you make your adjustment while you're sitting because your knee hurts, you know, see the limitations of pursuit of pleasure, you know, or the release. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it or you should do it. It just means I mean, that's one of the telltale signs of a long-time meditator. It's like, yeah, I totally give myself permission to move, but it's not really going to help for long. So maybe I won't move. That's the attitude of a long-time practitioner. It's like, they're not embarrassed to move their body during the middle of a sit. But they understand that it's a momentary pleasure. The knee will feel better for a while. I mean, obviously there are different situations you might actually be harming your knee and you should stretch your leg out. So I'm just talking about the ordinary pain in the back and knee that can arise in sitting. Or any other you know, way that we express this endlessness of desiring. There is no end to desiring. And gratification doesn't lead, getting what we want does not lead to the end of desire. Have you noticed? We've gotten a lot of the things we want, <laughs> but yet desire continues. So really look, like be a student of the joy of renunciation, but, but open-minded, like you're not drinking the Kool-Aid and thinking the Buddha's right, you're checking it out. Is there a much you know, profoundly more satisfying release in renunciation than there is in the pursuit of what we want and avoiding of what we don't want, the ordinary approach to life. Because we, you know, we tend to think the world is here to give me what I want. It's, that's just, that's such a self-centered way to think about the world or existence. It's like to provide us what we need for our happiness. The world is just Nature is just what it is. Just this movement of causes and conditions. It's not personally here to do anything for any of us. Or it's not here to, to, you know, it's not out to get us either. It's just what it is. The movement of causes and conditions. So the way forward is this alignment with nature, which is a renunciation of 
a personal dependence on the world being any particular way. So let's just let go of the words. Take a minute or two just to sit together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.